can certainly slip out. We have some out here in the hallway, some paperbacks we'd love for you to take. And of course, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can, you can keep that one for yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 18 through 31 today. Here's Jesus' words to us. And I hope that you sense the cover and hear the word of the Lord. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will not see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in, your, that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, asked him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not, not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper of the Holy, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you, uh, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would love, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. A lot there in that text we're going to try to unpack together this morning. Uh, but as you kind of getting settled in and, and, and getting your text, also we have some sermon guides back here on the back table if you wish to have one of those to follow along. That is there for your benefit if you wish to use those. Um, a couple of quick announcements that I want to make sure we say up front. One is, Lord willing, tomorrow we're supposed to get a delivery. Yes. Um, but that delivery involves 190 chairs, so we might need some help, okay? Um, they, apparently, they will pull them to the back of the truck, but they will not unload them off the truck, so we will need some help here. So it's supposed to be after work. They said 6 p.m. I don't know if that's going to be true. I should know something more firm time tomorrow, and I will send a blitz out to the church and let people know. But if you are available tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and can come down here within a you know, pretty quick amount of time, we would, could definitely use your help to offload those, truck, those uh, chairs. And uh, again, Lord willing, we will be sitting in different ones, not black, mismatched, metal chairs, half, you know, it's, yeah, it's fun. Um, but yeah, hopefully next week there'll be a different uh, place in here. All right. But uh, that too, and then, and then uh, the last thing I, I just want to say to you before we get moving is, um, actually, you know what, I'm just going to hold off on that for now. So yeah, let's, just, let's, let's just get on, get on, with, it, get on with it this morning. Uh, John chapter 14, we, we're, we're hopping back into the, our study through the Gospel of John this morning. Um, because, and last week we took a little bit of an excursus to talk a little bit about, you know, comparing the Bible's vision of flourishing life versus what we see pejoratively in our world today. And uh, we just really feel like we want to set down some, some, some clear ground, some clear understanding of what Scripture says and what life looks like when it's flourishing and, and what life is not look like when it's not flourishing and whatnot. But we're back into John chapter 14 um, today, and we're going to finish up this chapter. And, and we've been talking about this, this, this Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. And that's a significant transition in Jesus' uh, discipleship with, his, with, his, fr with his, his friends, his disciples, his followers. And it is going to definitely challenge them in terms of thinking about what would it look like to live both as his ambassadors in this world, but now he's not going to be present with them. He's always kind of been the guy kind of, you know, leading the pack. But now, like, what would it look like now without him? Now, you and I both know, we've, and I imagine most of us in here have, have faced significant times of change in our lives, right? I mean, there's, we've all faced these at various times in our life, all of us, meaning I would say the adults in this room, 
And you can think back to some of these times, right? Some of the ones we've all, most of us experienced is that transition from high school to, to college, that kind of place of like not so much independence to like lots of independence. And, you know, in teenagers, if you have your mom and dad in here constantly telling you there's going to be a day when your mom's not going to be here to do your laundry or to make sure you're doing your assignments, I can tell you for a fact that is real, right? It is real and it's going to come as a shocking reality to many of us in this room. Um, it did to many of the adults in this room when we all went to college, right? Um, I had a patented way in which I, I would uh, fold my, 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 um, my T-shirts, okay? I never did. You know why? Because I never could fold them right. And so then I would lay all my T-shirts out flat on top of each other, and I had like 40 T-shirts after they come out of the laundry, and they never got wrinkled. It was amazing. And they would just sit on my bed, and I'd just pull one off, and I would just put it on, and I'd go about my day. You know, I figured that out all by myself, y'all. It was awesome, all right? But that was a major transition in my life. It was a major transition for many of us in our life. That transition from a young adulthood to kind of married life or married life into now being parents. Uh, for me and Amanda, one of the most, you've heard me talk about it or, or at least allude to it several times. There was this period between 2006, uh, April 2006, when we first found out we were, we were pregnant. Amanda was pregnant with, uh, with, with Caleb to 2009 when we moved into our current home in April 2009. And that three-year span, friends, was, oh, it was so much change, it, was, it, tur- it would turn your head. We lived in five different locations, homes. We lived in two different states. We had went to start planting a church or hooking up with a church over in North Carolina and connecting with them. And that church floundered. And then we ended up back in Nashville to a church in South Nashville that gave way to a church split. And then that church split grew up and became a beautiful, wonderful church that then gave birth to this one. And, and then, you know, again, at the end of that 2009 period, man, we were, I mean, we were pregnant with our second child, Asher. And we were moving into the home that we currently live in now. And we've been there 13 years this spring. Lots of change, and change can come into our lives like that. And then sometimes, and I know this for some of our families in here, we have these like, like intensified seasons of change, just like what I'm just describing. And we don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to respond to that. And, and we don't really know, we have all the questions in our head, like, is God going to be with us? Is God going to provide for us? Is God going to provide for my family? Is, 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 he, is he punishing me for all this, with all this change? I mean, it could be all these different Questions that come in and out of our, our brain and our mind. It's, 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 it's a reality for all of us. But in John chapter 14, this is, this is the heart of our Savior who knows that reality in our lives. And he's been saying this all the way through this chapter about how he's grounding us in a, a deeper hope in the midst of life's constant change. I am the way, the truth, and the life we've seen. No one comes to the Father but through me. Like, that is the central reality of the Christian's life and heart. Like, it's where we are. It's where we need to continually drive ourselves to. That reality, that truth. He's telling them, you have a great work to do. And when I leave here, like, your work doesn't stop. And so much so that I'm going to send, number three, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit to come. And, and he's going to help you with that work. All of that we've already kind of unpacked a little bit here over the last few weeks. But even as Jesus is preparing him for this season of life, I just want to make sure that we take note of a couple of things that, that hopefully will give us great comfort. And is this, that he's clearly concerned, clearly concerned with the well-being of his people's hearts. He's not a stoic God. He's not saying, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, get over it, you know, suck it up, young man, kind of, kind of God. That's not who he is. He actually has a deep concern for his people's hearts, for our hearts in here this morning. He understands, as we'll see in this text, our inward frame, our inward being. And we've seen this over and over in this passage, his tender mercies, his tender heart for his his people. In verse 1 of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And in verse 27 of this passage, which we'll discuss more this morning, right? It, it says it very, he says it very clearly, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
God hasn't left his people alone. And God's not out there, you know, hoping that you can somehow or another uh, muster up enough mental fortitude to get through the next day or two. He actually is very much concerned for you. And he's very much concerned for me. Jesus is willing over and over again as we explore the Gospels to step into the anxious places of our lives and show us, like he's showing the disciples, we're showing them in this, this season right now, that he, he leaves, but as he leaves, we get even more blessing. With the presence of the Holy Spirit, we get more blessing as he will return one day and provide a home. As we've, again, we've already unpacked some of those things. And so today's text, I just wanted us to stop as we're kind of moving into chapter 15, which we'll get into the vine, the branches, all that wonderful stuff next week. I just want to stop and just ask ourselves, do you and I know what it means to remain steady? Do you and I know what it means to remain sure and encouraged as we await Jesus' return? And what Jesus will do in this text for his disciples, and what I believe is, is very much for us as well, He's going to show us everything that's part of a thriving Christian life between the two advents, between his first and his second coming. As we wait on Jesus' return, and this is the main idea, Christians live steady, sure, and encouraged lives as we place our hope in the death-defeating pledge of Christ. Again, we'll come back to that this morning who empowers us to grace-driven obedience through the work of the Spirit. I, I don't know about you, but I can't get enough of that message. I shouldn't get enough of that message. I should never get over the death-defeating death pledge of Jesus. I should never get over the fact that he calls me to obedience, but it's a grace-driven obedience that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do we get all those pieces? Do you not understand all those pieces are necessary for you and I to remain steady, sure, and encouraged for the life that stands before us? It's really important for us this morning. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at those three parts of that little statement. We're going to look at the death-defeating pledge of Jesus and, and, and call ourselves to memorialize that in our lives on a daily basis. We're going to look at grace-driven obedience and the joy that comes from that as part of the integral part of the, the Christian life that stays steady, sure, and, and encouraged. And then we're going to look at the power of the Spirit that provides for us as we wait. So let's just look at that first point there, right? Let us memorialize... Jesus' death-defeating pledge. Look at verses 18 through 20. Let's just look at verse 18. It says, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Now, this, this, this one little phrase has turned a lot of commentators upside down over the years. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus mean by saying, I, am, I won't leave you as orphans and I am coming to you, right? And, and, and listen... Um, there's a lot of grace in this. But here's how some people see it. See, this is kind of common to John's gospel. He kind of likes to throw these double entendres in there, like these double meanings to things. Well, in this case, I think it's more like a, a triple meaning, a triple entendre, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of very common in this. And so here's, here's one aspect of this text that some people believe is very important about what he means when, I'm, when I'm, I will come to you. He's, he's referring to his resurrection, Certainly that's imminent in this, at this point in our study in John, right? Like he's getting ready to go, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put to death, he's going to rise again, and he's going to come back to his disciples. So there's at least some aspect of this of him coming to us is true. The resurrection, is, is that, that must be what he has in mind. Others will say, well, uh, these are words of comfort that are pointing to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he's going to send um, to his disciples at Pentecost. Right? And others, on the other hand, will say it's something much, more, much broader, that it's a comfort for his soon return. It's pointing to his return, his ultimate return at the end of the age. I will come for you. So, so it's either his resurrection, or it's his, the work of the Spirit, or it's his return. And here's where I land on it. 
It's all of it. Am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to say it's all of it? I think it is. I think there's so much in this, and I'm going to show you why I think that it's all of it, at least in some sense. I think, he's, I think this is exactly what John wants us to, to see. I want to think he wants us to see the wonderful, rich texture of God's promises to us through Jesus' simple statement of, I am coming to you. Because here's what he goes on to, verse 19. Because I live, you will live too. That has to be a reference to resurrection. Right? That has to be the first fulfillment of what he's saying, I will come to you. Certainly, his resurrection was a near and present comfort for his disciples. And that when that actually happens, when they finally see the day when he is walking, with, like living again after his, his, his crucifixion, this would be a, a landmine reality for them. Because I live, so also you will live. You will live too. The resurrection is this historical event whereby God visibly and publicly defeats death. Amen? Amen? It's why we celebrate Easter each year. Now, we and should every Sunday celebrate resurrection, right? Because that is the, that's kind of the heart of it, right? But it is this historical event where God is saying, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to come to you. It is going to be such a powerful display of me defeating death that it'll blow your mind. That, that has to be part of this, right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it as clearly as anyone. I have delivered to you what is of first importance, what I have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised, and on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is of first importance to the Christian. So clearly, at least in some degree, this is what Jesus has in mind. This is what he's trying to help his disciples understand, is that this, there is resurrection implications here. But the resurrection isn't simply like, important to us because it's an historical fact, which it is, but it's essentially a spiritual effect on, for the Christian. Like, what does a resurrection, what effect does it have on you and me? And that's where we see very clearly from Romans chapter 6 what the resurrection is. Because Christ died to atone for our sins, he likewise rises to give us new life over the grave. Amen. Let's just read the text. I'll just read it from the text here, okay? Romans chapter 6. We're looking to pick up in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the death by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus is making it emphatically clear here. I'm coming to you, and it's not just that I'm going to come and like have coffee with you, which is okay, wonderful, right? But I'm, I'm actually going to dwell within you, and that resurrecting power that, has re, that, that, that which I conquer death with will be your resurrecting power for, for you, people, for us. And so this is part of it. But then he also says here in this text, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now what does that point us to? Well, that has to point to both the work of the Holy Spirit and, as some level, His return on that day. That's the critical point here. On that day, what day is He talking about? Is it Pentecost? Perhaps. Is it resurrection? Perhaps. But I think here, this is pointing me to the day when we visibly see Jesus return. This reference to that day seems to be that day when they see Jesus post-resurrection and that day when he returns. In other words, what I think we have to understand here is that the context of all of this passage is this God, Jesus promising to send his Holy Spirit. But as he's sending his Holy Spirit, this his Holy Spirit is there to sustain them as they wait for what? That day. That day when Jesus returns. And so I think this is implications of this all over the place is his return to his people. But then again, let's just, that you are in me and I am in you. In other words, everything I've promised you, when I return one day and you see Jesus, when you see me come in all my glory, Jesus says, 
you will know that I have been in you the entire time. You have been me and I have been with you and this has been wonderful and everything that I promised you has come to its final completion. See, the frame of this teaching is centered on the Holy Spirit. This reference of you are in me and I am in you will be increasingly realized in the life of God's people from the time of their conversion to the time that they meet their Savior face to face in that final day. That final day, what a glorious day it'll be. I, don't, I can't even fathom what that day will be like. I find myself sometimes mind wandering of what that might look like. I don't know what that day will be like. If I live long enough, if you live long enough ourselves, maybe we will see what that is if, 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 if Jesus doesn't tarry. But the one thing that I know we will experience when I see Jesus face to face, it's going to remind me that he's been with me the entire time. Amen. He's never let me go. That day when he returns will be full confirmation of everything he's promised he was going to do for his people. It all works together. The resurrection, the work of the Holy Spirit, and that final day when he returns. It all works together towards this glorious end. So when you put all this stuff together... We've got to remember, and I hope this draws you into a deeper, uh, multi-tiered appreciation for the death-defeating, death-destroying pledge of Jesus to God's people. And that he will accomplish everything for you and I that is needed for us to get all the way home. I appreciate uh, a statement that is well-worn at this point by a pastor named Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. It's all of our redemption. It is that when you recognize all the work of redemption, everything that Jesus is accomplishing for us, there's this full-throated work of the, of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is doing everything necessary for us to enter in, to continue in, and to end with God in heaven. And it's all completed in him. It's finished. It was, it was wonderfully reminded to me as my own personal reading through Exodus this week. And many of you, I was in Exodus 14 primarily. I was in a couple of chapters there. But it says, as, and I was reminded as, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, God commands these festivals, right? To, to, and he commands them to memorialize the Passover. And why does he call them to memorialize the Passover? To remember what he has done, friends. So if you want to thrive, if you want to be steady, if you want to be sure, you must do the same with the gospel of Jesus. Memorialize that death-defeating pledge of Jesus on a cross. And how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of different ways you do it, but most, most notably we do it through this. This Sabbath day, Lord's Day worship. We do it through the... Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Because it is that sign and seal to us that God, what he says, he promises, God will fulfill himself. He will do it for us. See, God told Exodus, told, told Moses when we left there, he goes, look, do this so that you may teach your children and the next generation may teach your children so that they will remember all that I have done for you. And you and I both know what happens, right? When we don't teach our children, the next generation becomes a little less concerned about it, and then eventually it's completely forgotten two or three generations down the road. And we see this in Israel, and we see this sometimes in the church. Friends, it's deeply important that we memorialize the death-defeating pledge of Jesus in the way we catechize our children, in the way that we take the Lord's Supper, and, and in the way in which we gather for the Lord's Day on, a given, on, on any given week. Because this is the way God has established His people to remember him. To take joy in him. And frankly, as we'll get into the second point, to spur us on to joy, joyful, grace-driven obedience. That's our second thought. The second way in which we remain steady, sure, and encouraged is to find joy in, in grace-driven obedience. Again, let's go back to John chapter 14 here in verses 21 through 24. Um, 
and, and kind of process some of this text. Because here, one of the biggest debates in the church and has been in the church for as long as the church has existed is this re- relationship between our, our justification, right? How are we justified before a holy God and our obedience, our works? There's always been a debate in the church for this. And wonderfully, God has memorialize, if you will, through history, how men have always sought to, to recover the centrality of the gospel in that. And, and, and that's one of, the, it's one of the chief issues that, that spurred the Reformation and the nature of it altogether. And why is this such a big deal? Well, here's the reason why it's a big deal. And it's, and it's a reason why we got to understand this before we actually look at the text. Because people have taken the text that we are about to read and they have, they have they've justified... Um, works-based righteousness. And it's wrong. And it's a wrong interpretation of this text. Because when we have a wrong understanding of the relation, our relationship between us and God, and what justifies it, what marks that out for the Christian life, if it's, wrong, if, if it's based on and rooted in any type of merit on my own or your own, what will end up happening is leading us into this, this fruitless pursuit of pietism that will only, in the end, frustrate us, depress us, cause us to be anxious. And again, sadly, many people take the text we're about, we're about to study here for a few minutes, and um, they try to support a works-based righteousness. But I think, and as I hope you'll see, a thorough understanding of this text actually drives us to a grace-driven obedience. I love J.C. Ryle. You know I do. I read him often. I quote him often. Uh, I read lots of his, his works. He says of this, in his commentary of this particular passage, this is a lesson of vast importance and one that needs to be continually pressed upon the attention of Christians. It, meaning the verse, is not talking about religion or man-made religion. But is, stead- but is calling us to steadily doing Christ's will and walking in Christ's ways by faith that is the proof of our being a true believer. In other words, simplifying it down, the, 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 the evidence, if you will, of a true believer is that person who is continually driving in, deepening in themselves into the will and walking in Christ's ways. It's not that the Christ ways and doing these commands earns us salvation, but it's the fruit of that salvation. It's the fruit of what God has bore in our hearts through the work of redemption. It's, have you ever heard your grandma say, it's proof in the pudding, son? Proof is in the pudding. You ever heard that statement? Most of us do. I, don't, I hope most of you know this. If you don't, well, man, you've missed out on a lot in life. But, um, but like proof is in the pudding. This is John Calvin would say the proof is in the pudding. To have his commandments, he says, means to be properly instructed in them so as to keep them is to fashion our lives to their rule. In other words, what he's saying and what what Ryle is saying is true love of Jesus gives way to true obedience to Jesus. It's helpful to us when we think about it this way. To have a new heart regenerated by the Spirit is to have a renewed love and devotion to the law and, and, and commands of God. Not the other way around. Like, my, my dutiful obedience to God doesn't merit salvation. It doesn't generate a new affection for God. But no, it's the new affection that God puts in my heart through the work of the Spirit that generates a new love for His law and for His ways and for His commands. This is exactly what we talk about in the New Testament age, in the New Covenant age, right? Where the love of the law is the realization of the great promise that God has spoken about many years ago through the prophets. We've talked about it a few times over the last few weeks. Joel... Two, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Jeremiah 31, I will write my law on their hearts. All of that is realized here in this text. You obey God out of a new affection. And that new affection is wrought in your heart through a new work of the spirit in your heart that calls you unto salvation. The gospel isn't about abolishing the law. Unfortunately, some have erred in that way. But it's about writing the law on our hearts once again. That's what was lost in the garden. When God cursed and sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, it was because they rejected His good law, His good commands. And that law written on the heart, on the posterity of man, was removed. 
Now, that doesn't mean it was removed entirely. We all know that there is a conscience that God puts on man, and we know what is right and wrong, but ultimately there's no regard for that right and wrong until Jesus comes, until he sends his spirit to his people. And I don't want you, and I just want to make sure I push this point really well here this morning, we're not talking about a kind of obedience that's kind of like a begrudging obedience. Oh, okay, well, yeah, God loves me, and yes, I know I'm saved by grace, but man, I got to do, do things I just don't love to do. Well, that's true. Uh, there, there's some of that old sin, sin nature in us that's still being removed, right? But, but he's not calling us to a, 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 gray, a, a begrudging submission. He's calling us to a, an affectionate submission, a grace-driven submission to his will and to his commands and to his law. It's a, it's a heart, as I said already, regenerated joy that progressively energizes us and renews us to a love for the law of God in our life. The problem is that oftentimes, and I think this is what happens many times, if we, the way in which we talk about obeying God's commands is that we talk about the work we're supposed to do for God before we talk about the worship of God. And this is where John, this is where John Piper's been so instrumental in this over the last 20 or 30 years. Because he's really had, you read one of his books, you've read all of his books. And he says that himself. And here's what he says. Serving God without savoring God is, a, is lifeless and unreal. It's work without worship. And it results in a lifeless legalism. What he says on the other side, and which we know is from the scriptures, is this idea that actually it's our worship that drives the work. Lots of people like to take James and say, you know, that you, know, that you need to, that your faith is with works, right? Let your works prove your faith, right? But what James is saying there is simply the same thing that John Piper is saying here, same thing that J.C. Ryle is saying here, same thing that John Calvin is saying here. We have a faith that works. See the emphasis? We have a grace that works. We have a new affection that works. This is our hope in these commands. So I say all of that to you before we even get into the text because it's so vitally important that we understand that scope of interpretation for this text. It's just, it's, it's amazing, right? That's what he says there, like, the one who has my commands and will keep them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. That's what Jesus has in mind for us. This new affection, as Thomas Charles, is the, the expulsive power of a new affection expulses sin, and it expulses a, 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 a dislove or an un, a, a, a love or an anti-love for the law of God, if you will. But then his disciples start forming a question, and, and it says this guy named Nicodemus, um, that, uh, I'm sorry, not Nicodemus, um, Judas, comes, and not Iscariot, says, well, then how is it then that you manifest yourself just to us, but not to the world? That's what it says there about halfway through this section, verse 22, I think. And the question's important. How are you and I to deal with that reality? Why is it that some people get an option for this and others do not why do some people get this and others don't and jesus answers verse 23 if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him but whoever does not love me does not keep my words now pay attention to what's going on here he's saying as I've already said, I hope I've made the point, those who obey and love God's law are those whom God has set his saving affections on and indwelt with his spirit. That's kind of what's in view here. Jesus, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone has a new affection, that is, through the help of the Holy Spirit, and my Father will love him. In other words, he will experience the love of the Father. Like, this is what we're all longing for, right? Right? He's not saying, if you love me, you'll prove it by doing really, really great things for me. That's not what's being said here. No, he actually 
makes the point even clearer in the second half. I will come to him and make my home with him. What, what is that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I will make my home with him and whoever. But he says the difference is that those who don't keep my word don't have that. They don't have God taking up residence in them. They don't have the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. If you want to know where the love of God comes out and comes in your life, it's because God has taken up residence in your life through the Holy Spirit. If you want to know why you have a love for the God's law or increasing love for God's law, it's because God's Spirit has taken up residence in your life. If you want to know why you sometimes have felt less in, in the past, less of the love of God, but more of it as you've grown as a Christian, it's because God's Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. Amen. This is the nature of the gospel. Those who don't love God and His commands have not had the triune God take up residency in them through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So what he's not talking about here in this passage is not your justification. Like you're not keeping the law of God. You're not keeping his commands so that you earn salvation. You are keeping his commands because you are, you are living out the love of God that has been affected in your heart. And affected in my heart. Our sanctification is a growing communion with God. This is what we see here, right? I will love him and I will make myself manifest to him. When we are justified by the work of Jesus, we are then deepened into that communion with God. And that is, the, that is what sanctification is. Sanctification isn't you just always having, you know, getting your little checklist right with God. It's a deepening communion with Him through word and through prayer and through the church and through the ordinary means of grace, as we say here often. So then at the end of the day, in this point, I just want to make sure we've said it, made it clear our obedience to Christ is the outgrowth of our justification by faith. I hope I've made that clear. Our obedience to Christ is the outgrowth of our justification by faith. Our ongoing, number two, our ongoing transformation in Christ is the fruit of a deepening communion with Christ. If you want to see continual gratitude change, you want to see continual loosening from that sin pattern, whatever it may be in your life, you, you must Put that affection into action. That's the work of sanctification in our lives. Right? And I'm not talking about you doing it. I'm talking about the fact that we are being yielded more and more to the work of the Spirit in our lives. And He Himself is constantly transforming you by, the, by, by, by means of communion with Christ. He does it. And He will continue to do it. See, God is not after your begrudging behavior modification. God is not after your perfectionism. God is not after any of those things. What is God after? He's after your heart. The heart is the, is the, is the starting point for any change in our lives. And so Jesus makes it very clear here. This is what it's all about. This, this point became really clear to me as I've reflected over this event many times over the last, um, we're almost 17 years married? No, well, not almost, 16 and a half. Me and Amanda argue, like, a half a year for me is a whole year. For her, a, a half a year is, like, not a year. So we're like, so she'll err towards 16 years and I err towards 17 years. You can interpret that however you wish. But, um, but the reality is we're getting close to 17 years of marriage. And the guy, the gentleman, Ryan Fullerton, who did our premarital counseling, uh, he, when we were doing premarital counseling, I, I was, man, I was, oh boy, I was so immature during these days, and it was ridiculous. And I remember him, we were having, we were reading through a book, and we were having good conversations. And, you know, of course, the, the natural conversation, the natural question comes up is, you know, how are you guys doing in an impurity aspect of, the, of this as you're waiting on marriage, right? And I remember, and man, it's, it's one of those things that just, it, it, it still sends chills down my spine. Uh, Ryan looks across the table, and we're kind of stumbling through this and everything, and, and, and Ryan looks at us, and he says, do you love Jesus enough to keep your hands off of her? Yes, sir. <laughs> right? But what was he saying there? He was not saying, prove your faith, Tom. Prove your faith, Amanda. Rather, he was saying, has the fruit of faith in your life is it bearing the, uh, this bringing a greater affection for Jesus that results, results in the joy to live the way God has designed you to? Does that make sense? 
Is the fruit of faith bearing fruit in your life? Not that you're living your life to the T on every little thing you're doing, but that you are living your life in such a way that the, the, the love of Jesus is the dominating factor of your entire life. And all of us are on a different arc. And we pray that Jesus will continue to work through the work of the agency of the Spirit. But there's another aspect to this, this last point that I think we want to press into really deeply about the specifics of the role of the Spirit in our life in this intermediary time between the Advents. That's going to help us remain steady, sure, and encouraged in the days to come. And it is to rest in the Spirit's the Spirit's driven, Spirit-driven provision and peace. And that's what we see here in verses 25 through 31. Spirit-driven provision and peace. Look at what it says there in verse 25. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, remind you of everything I have told you. The first gift of the Holy Spirit, the first provision of the Holy Spirit, the first aspect of peace from the Holy, from, from God is, from the Holy Spirit is this truth applied to our hearts. It's, it's very much the same thing we've just been talking about. The love of God and the love of his law is progressively being applied and ingrained into the very heart of our lives. And that's what he says here. The Holy Spirit will come and he will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all things that I have told you. He's teaching us all things. He is, it is a work of applying the law of God to our hearts and not just the law of God, law of God to our hearts, but that the, but God is bringing the whole law and gospel to bear on our hearts. Amen. See, it's not enough just to have the law. We have to must have law and gospel. We must have law and gospel. This is the nature of true Christian doctrine. The nature of true Christian preaching is law and gospel. My hope is that when you come in here on a given Sunday, whether I'm preaching or someone else is preaching, is that you get the law says this, but the gospel says this. You need both. You need both, and I need both. We should see the law in our Christian teaching and Christian doctrine, in our our Christian preaching, right? Because it is showing us the application of the Spirit through the Spirit of the law into our lives, into our hearts. Does that make sense? And what is the use of the law in our lives? Well, the, the divines would say it this way, that we would see ourselves most truthfully. That's the first use of the law. We see it as a mirror and we see ourselves honestly. The second use of the law is to establish righteousness, what is right, true, and good. And then the last would be to restrain evil. To restrain evil. And so when we see the law and we see the demands of the law and we see that we don't meet the demands of the law, what that ultimately does through the work of the Holy Spirit is it drives us to our desire and our need for something else, which is, of course, to see the gospel, that God's grace revealed in the work of Jesus who atones for all of our sin debt. I will... Send my counsel, the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. That's the first gift of the Holy Spirit to God's people. And it is an active gift of the Holy Spirit today. The second active gift of the Holy Spirit is God, as we wait for Jesus' return, is found in uh, verse 26 and 27. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you, I will not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. The second gift of the Holy Spirit is peace. Peace while you wait. We are waiting pilgrims. On a journey to heaven. And he says clearly, peace I leave with you. The Christian, as Jesus is explicitly saying here, is guaranteed the presence of Christ's peace throughout all of our travails on this rock we call earth. Right? This is a promise to God's people. And moreover, I love how he even emphasizes it. My peace I will give you. And what does he compare that to? I will not give you as the world gives. 
No, it's my peace. And what is he saying there? Well, I can, can't say it any better than, again, our good friend J.C. Ryle. Okay? So forgive me for being such a, uh, a, a fanboy, I guess. He says, it is specially his, Jesus' own to give. Own peace to give. Because he bought it by his own blood and purchased it by his own substitution and is appointed by the Father to dispense it to a perishing world. He continues on, peace is Christ's particular gift, not money, not worldly ease, not temporal prosperity. These are not, these are at best very questionable possessions. They are often do more harm than good to the soul. They act as clogs and weights to our spiritual life, inward peace of conscience, and arising from a sense of pardon, sin, and reconciliation with God in is a far greater blessing. This peace is the prosperity of all believers, whether high or low, rich or poor. In other words, Jesus' peace is diametrically different than the peace that you and I seek on a daily basis if we're honest with ourselves. Friends, I, I must confess, I find way too much assurance in worldly peace. I find way too much assurance in financial peace. I find way too much assurance in relational peace. Constantly. I assume I'm not alone in that. And Jesus says very clearly, my peace I give to you. Who, who? The counselor. You have that peace right here this morning, dear brother and sister. I do too. Where you struggle to, 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 to ground your peace in Christ, know that you with full assurance that that peace is yours for the taking. And Jesus says, drink deeply of it. Drink deeply of it. And then in the end, he says, I will no longer be with talk with you much, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let's go up from here. This is the third gift of the Spirit, of eternal joy when he returns. Do you and I, we get tossed to and fro by the ruler of this world, do we not? Come on, can we be honest about that? Too many things in this world get us turned upside down. And I hope we're willing enough to be honest about that. See, Christ reveals to us now what we will see later. And which is what? That Christ cannot be overthrown and he cannot be thwarted by Satan. We might get tossed to and fro in this time, but we're never. But, we, but Christ shows us now that that there's no way he may do, he may throw his fiery darts at us right now. But he but but Christ will not be overthrown. He will not be thwarted. He does the will of the Father and only the will of the Father. He says in this text, and he's kept them and he's finished them. Amen. Satan has no weapon to destroy you. Because you are in Christ. And this is immeasurable to us. This is what we will see when his, in his glorious return. It's what we see now in his resurrection. It's what we see now or have seen in his ascension. It's what we will see ultimately in his return as he demonstrates in the starkest terms possible, Christ is king. He's king now. He's going to demonstrate it powerfully in a day to come. In that day, as we said earlier. I want to return to some reflections again from Exodus. I, I mentioned earlier about uh, the Israelites um, leaving Egypt there in chapter 13 and 14. God's preparing them through all the, the different um, plagues and whatnot. And as they're out there and they're finally leaving after the Passover, they're finally getting ready to come down. And you know what? You know what happens inevitably, right? They get down to the, to the sea, right? They're kind of, the sea's at their back and they're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? They look behind them and here comes Pharaoh with all of his gang. And man, just panic ensues. 
You've been there, right? God's led you down a path, and you feel like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? And you look behind you going, oh, gosh, death is bearing down. Let's just read verses, verse 10, and a few verses from Exodus chapter 14. This so perfectly fits where we went through. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here, uh, else away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not... Is, it, is, is, it, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I felt that way many times. And Moses said to his people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which it would be great for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Isn't that beautiful? So the disciples now are, are transitioning this, this season when Jesus will be risen and ascended into heaven, and they will go through the season where they have only the comforter of the Spirit. Not only, but the Spirit, right? And, and, and they don't know what's going to happen. The same way as these people who are following Moses out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and they don't know what's going to happen, and they got one back to the sea, and they got their enemies hot on their, hot on their, back, on their backside here, and they don't know what's going to happen, and they do the same thing that you and I are prone to do. It would have been better just to die in Babylon. Right? And Moses' words, fear not, stand firm, see your salvation that God will work out for you today. You will never see these Egyptians again. Why do you stand firm? Why do you fear not? Because God is working out your salvation for you, brother and sister. Why do you stand firm and why do you fear not? Because the world's assault on God's people is temporary at best. Why do you fear not and why do you stand firm? Because the Lord fights for you. And what do we do in the meantime? Well, this is the hard one, right? Be quiet. What? Be quiet? I'm supposed to be quiet in the midst of this chaos? Are you serious? Yeah, be quiet. Be still and know that I am God. I think that's somewhere else said in the scriptures, right? Be still and know God. Not quiet, by the way, of declaring the gospel. Not quiet on declaring what is true and right and good. Not quiet on those things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of quiet, uh, uh, peace, that we are to have in the midst of our circumstances, circumstantial fear and anger that can oftentimes co-opt the gospel in our lives. Every one of us has that. Every one of us has that. I see it a lot today on both ends of the cultural spectrums and divides and debates. It's the admonition here is to lead quiet and peaceable lives with deep trust in the sustaining riches of Christ for his people. That's what we see. Don't worry about what's on your backside. Only worry about what's on your front side. Your God today will save you. He will save you. Amen? God, help us this morning as we now prepare for the Lord's table.